Hey everybody, we're the Con Artists. We're back for another podcast episode. This time we're going to conclude the second half of Zero from our first podcast. So as with the first podcast, massive, massive spoilers in this one. Uh, if you are really sensitive to spoilers, please do not listen to this one until you've watched the rest of the show. Alrighty, so I think we had a lot of interesting predictions for this, and let's we're, we're going to come to how they, they came out. So, season two was very different, I think, tonally from season one, and I, I want to start off with the things we liked, because we're going to have a lot of dislikes for the show, just throwing that out there, but there were some things that we genuinely enjoyed. So, I think, Dan, I, I want you to touch on the animation first, because this was probably as stellar as it was in the first season i'd say i would say so it never stopped being top notch the animation throughout both season one and season two was pretty consistently high um the cg wasn't bad at all normally i'm not a big fan of cg combined with traditional animation but it wasn't bad um they yeah, when you put it in space you can get away with more yeah yeah you've got a little bit more flexibility um they also kind of toned down some of the nonsense factor and their the scenarios while somewhat more creative because a lot of them are taking place in space are generally a bit more realistic not always it's true there's no more transforming super robot no no there is. i know you're secretly sad about that you can admit it it's okay i mean i like my transforming super robots but but not here and they weren't here which was nice yeah. so i think they, they kind of figured out what was wrong with that and took it out so i was happy mm. that's good did you guys notice that those shooting star kids were back from the first season? Oh, yeah, right at the very end. Like this moment towards the end where they're like, look, a shooting star, when, like, the two main characters are fighting together. And I was like, you kids are the same as the kids in episode one. I appreciated the fact that they aged them a little bit. Like, the little boy can, I think, stand up now. He's, like, a little bit taller, yeah. and the little girl's a little bit taller. I was like, oh, okay, you took the time to age these kids, because... Uh, I guess we haven't mentioned it. The sh season two takes place 19 months after season yep. one. Mm. So um, these kids have, in fact, aged. You know what? Way so to go, nice kids. To if, if this isn't going to get you down to the point where you can still look up at the sky and enjoy shooting stars, nothing's going to. So mm -hmm. way to go. <laughs> yes. Yes, I really did enjoy that. So, Scott, I know you are kind of a fan of more realistic, I guess, character interaction so you want to talk a little bit about how all our characters interact for this one because it wasn't really the weird like super team effort that i think we all expected in the first one like a lot of the time our, our team came together in the first one yeah i mean the first one had a big theme of like sort of the small team of guys with kind of underpowered mechs having to work together but uh yeah the new show was was uh, we'll get to this later but it was kind of the anaho show uh, for most of it. But in terms of the parts that I did appreciate, like, it was very interesting that a Salem and Anaho, like, don't end up teaming up again. Like, in the first show, right, they were always, like, a Salem was always kind of there on the ship with him. And even though a Salem is, like, very heavily influencing Anaho and Slain as well, like, throughout the show, in fact, she's the reason both of them more or less are doing what they're doing, uh, they never actually really meet, except for, like, a couple seconds in one of these episodes. And... I don't know. I don't see a lot of shows that do that. Like they almost always have to have uh, you know the character's motivation be physically present, and this is this is very different, which was interesting to watch. Right. Normally, the team has to always be together so that they can force an interaction that you know gives you that sense of camaraderie. So it was it was neat that they almost had to 
they were working together, but not together. So that was a fascinating. Kind of along parallel lines, I guess you might say. Right, right. Yeah. Parallel motivation, almost across time. So. Yeah, in terms of other people, like I really liked, like now there's this thing where they capture this uh, version count and he's on the, the surface. And Naho lets him go almost immediately. And it's he has this like really long-term plan about how he's going to use this guy to figure out where or if, like where the princess is or if she's alive and what Slane's up to. And it's like very long-term plan, but it's really satisfying to watch because, you know, it's a, it's a non-military play he's making. And the show does this season seems to be a lot more focused on the dramatic elements rather than just straight fights. And I really liked watching how that progressed because it was an intelligent move on his part that uh, didn't rely on his combat prowess. You know, pulling off of that, one thing I found really interesting about that count in particular is, first of all, his name is what? Mazurka or something? Mazurka? Something like that. Something like that. So Anaho points out that Mazurka is a type of folk music so i actually went out and looked that up oh, cool. it, it turns out it is it's polish folk music huh. and so i thought this was a really neat point to make that not all the Vergian um knights are totally against earth like you you kind of you see that vers is most definitely the enemy but I had mentioned in the first season that I really liked the fact that they threw in a couple moments in there that gave you this sense of culture. And the Varus culture is very clearly feudal in this season. Like, did anyone else notice the massive GRE words they're throwing around up there in Varus? Like, did anyone but me notice that? They'd be like, haha, the plebeian society of the Terrans. Or I'm, I'm pretty sure at one point, one of the, the characters we'll get to a little later, uh, Lemrina who's the new princess for our show, She she's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's not interesting unless somebody has, like, a Machiavellian point of view or something. Mm. And then when Inaho's talking to uh, Mazurka, he's like, oh, uh, Mazurka's like, oh, you're going to keep me in here, like, a pig in an abator or something like that? Like oh, an, ab- housing- an abattoir, yeah. An abattoir, thank you, Scott. I think. I think you're right. Um, Like this housing for pigs. And I was like, look at all these words being thrown around. There's another instance where one of these jerk face counts comes to challenge Slain in his rise to power. And he just, he has this dramatic speech to who he thinks is a Salem that's just so vastly different language-wise, from anything anyone on Earth says to each other, ever. And I was like, wow, we're really getting a showcase of the cultural difference right here, right now. So I was very impressed by the fact that they touched on all of that and gave us this much stronger sense of culture, much stronger separation of culture between the Terrans and the Vares. Actually, you know what's really interesting now that you mention it? Yeah, they tended to use a lot of very... I guess, flowery and or GRE words in their speech when they're talking, but because it's all based on honor, it's all interpersonal. Whereas when Earth wants to be smart, they seem to use all the big science words, mm. right? They figure out what the, uh, like the Aldnoa mechs, I don't think the version guys ever really bothered disca- you know, describing how they work, but the Earth guys are always having to figure it out. And it's always in scientific terms. Or, you know, the the big, um, I don't even call it really, I'll just call it the thing between Anaho and Salem where why is the sky blue? And they're talking about Raleigh backscattering and that sort of right. thing. 
So they tend to they tend to talk big when it's time for science, but you're right, they cannot compare when it comes time for uh, for flowery speeches. <laughs> exactly, flowery speeches are just everywhere. But at the same time, it was interesting that some version counts have taken an interest enough, or perhaps their family has taken an interest enough that you know his parents name him after Polish folk music, yeah. which is clearly Terran. So yeah. well, they're only like what one or two generations touch. removed, I think, from. From, like, living on Earth? Give or take, like yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so they're still, I mean, even though they don't want to admit it, I'm sure, they still have some ties to, to Earth. Right, but since we never go to Vares, you know, you, you lose that sense in a way. Yeah. And this was a nice touch to give mm. it back. True. So I, I thought that was cool. I agree. Uh, moving back briefly to uh, something that you had said earlier, Scott, um, the mech fights in general felt a lot more interesting than the ones from, I'd say, the latter two-thirds of uh, the first season. Because after the very first mech that they encounter in season one, like, the next one, the next one after this giant, invincible, like, dissolving super mech, you get a dude with a sword, a lady with rocket fists, and then, like, the crazy, like, transforming mech that has all of these other abilities... They just sort of kind of slide downhill in terms of interest, but they brought back a few pretty cool ones in this one. Uh, there was a guy who can, in the very beginning, reduce the temperature of everything around him to like this crazy low, uh, this crazy low temperature to the point where he can freeze up enemy robots. Uh, there's this one with these incredibly long-range uh, laser beams, and the way they defeat that was one of my favorite moments in the whole show. Probably the high point for me because they actually had hmm. to use obscuration, smoke grenades, all that kind of stuff in order to confuse him. And then Inaho, rather than winning the day himself, uses abilities that he has gotten in order to call in artillery strikes to take care of the problem. Um, and that also brings in the Deucalion. The Deucalion problem, though it was in the first season, kind of comes into its own this time around, because it's more than a flight-capable bus. It's actually using its weapons firing over the horizon with those giant cannons that it never freaking used. <laughs> Finally! Yeah, so <laughs> while the whole flying battleship thing is a little silly in a more semi-grounded uh, setting, it actually was getting its fair shake. So I wasn't too upset with that. I thought that was a cool touch. Yes, thank goodness for that. I'm going to come right off of that and say that the science was top-notch in this one. So, Dan, I know you just mentioned that the laser mech is your favorite. My favorite has to be the moment where the invisible mech teams up with the mech that can generate electricity. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, at one point, there's a smoke screen that they throw out, because they keep using the smoke screen technique to catch the invisible one. So it turns out that the electrical one is like, oh, here's what we're going to do. And he just fires something into the air, and the smoke screen around them disappears. So once again, they're invisible, because they can couple together, and it turns out the invisible mech can also make other mechs invisible within a certain radius. So it turns Cheating. out that he he ionizes the air around him to group the molecules together and drop the fog to the ground because it's too heavy to stay in the air now. Huh. It increases the density and it drops the fog. And there, that was incredible. Just, just one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And of course, Scott, we got to have our electrical engineer shout out here. Electrical engineers, yeah. Yeah. So the the electrical mech, um, and Aho's fighting it, and he's like, "Oh ho!" So he lets himself get electrocuted, and then he's like, "You see, now I've changed my mech so that we have the same electrical potential, and electricity needs a potential difference in order to flow. You can't electrocute me anymore." And I was like, "Oh." 
He's right. <laughs> and it was so exciting to me that that level of science was coming into play. I mean, it was impressive in the first one, but it was just leagues better in the second one. The second, the yeah, they did kind of have like like more of it throughout, which mm-hmm. was really good. Yeah, yeah, that and was really yeah. Cool. Made it, they made it impressive in their their conclusions, like, oh, why didn't he blow up that time? No, he's got a good reason. Right. Right. Good times. So, yeah, very neat. Good times with that. So I noticed that there wasn't a whole lot of difference in the music this time around. I mean, there was the same tracks pretty much played through the whole thing, but I was a really big fan of the way they used the music. I mean, I thought they used it nicely in the first season, but I thought it was much more important in the second season because our team is not together. So there's this pervading symbolism going on with the music. I don't want to dig too deep into it, but Sawano Hiroyuki has this thing where a lot of his music is in English. Mm. So his Aldnoa tracks with vocals have English in them. I believe a lot of the Guilty Crown tracks have English in them. Uh, chunks of Kill a Kill have English in them. And um, the two songs that play a lot are Keep On Keeping On and No Differences. And Keep On Keeping On will play a lot during big space battles. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's about like this soldier left all alone, pretty much watching war happen around him and kind of absorbing what's going on. So it fit very nicely. And then No Differences, in my opinion, was always a Salem song. If you listen to the lyrics, it has things like, got over it ages ago that we're both from the same river, and and I asked you why the sky is blue, there is no difference, you and me. So I always thought of it as her song, and it plays almost every time Slain and Anaho battle each other. And she's never there to witness it, but to me it was always her trying to sing to them, or metaphorically for them, that they shouldn't be fighting each other because, in reality, they are of the same people. And then globally, the song means, why do Earth and Varys fight each other? Because they are of the same people. So I thought a lot of the tracks fit very nicely. I'm, I'm always impressed with the music in this show. I'd like mm-hmm. to offer kind of a counterpoint to that. When I was watching it, now, what you have said makes a lot of sense. I definitely see it in a different, uh, from a different viewpoint now. But when I was watching it, the version that I saw didn't have any lyrics. Uh, I was just listening to it purely in Japanese. Um, or, you know, there were occasional bits of English, as you said, but for the most part, I couldn't understand what was being said. And I personally felt that while the music was good, it sounded good, it did not fit the tone of the show that was happening around it. Because these often happened in battle, they sound like mellow J-pop or light J-rock. It didn't... I don't know. I felt that the music, especially in the early parts of season one, fit things a lot better. There was more tension, there was more energy to it. This just didn't quite work for me. But knowing what I know now about the uh, lyrics, I can at least understand why they went with them. I don't necessarily think the music itself was right, but the idea behind it was good. Makes sense. That's just me, though. Hmm. Makes sense. So I'm just gonna, I'm just going to end with my own personal victory here. <laughs> I, I noticed that... So we'll talk about this a lot more later, but Inaho survives 
in case people didn't figure that out from us talking. Inajo survives, and he has this, what I, we can only dub the magic eye. His, his left <laughs> eye has been shot out, yeah. and he now possesses a what's known as an analytical engine, but it's basically a magic eye in his left eye. And every time they'd go into an attack on Vers, they would always send out his older sister, Yuki, Riot, who you remember is a Martian from the first season who was kind of a traitor face, and um, Inko, who's the sniper. And I was like, you know, he's an awful lot like Odin, since he lost his left eye and he's able to see everything. He's a lot like Odin sending out Valkyries, because he always sends the women out to, to do the initial strike. And then Calm, poor tragic Calm, who's barely a character, <laughs> at one point is talking to him and goes, you know, you're an awful lot like Odin with the eye, because you, you gave up your left eye for knowledge. And I was like, who freaking called it? I freaking called it! You definitely earned that so one. Yes, yeah, so I earned a point <laughs> for for knowing that he was Odin. So Yeah. That's, Very that's nice. pretty much it. So... I think, unfortunately, that's that's about everything we found really good. Well, I guess I'd, I had one other thing, which was, uh, like, so the show's focus switches more from, like, the team-based, like, fighting against, uh, like, super mechs mentality to a lot more of a character drama, primarily between Anaho mm-hmm. and Slane. And uh, you can argue whether this is good or not. I think they did a good job of the two of their dramas. We'll talk about other drama later that wasn't so great. But watching Slane's sort of rise to the top and how he got there from his rather humble beginnings in episode, in uh, season one was very impressive. Oh yeah, you're absolutely and they, right. They did they did a good job. Yes, yeah, so that was that was like my point too, and I forgot to make it. Yeah, I I loved oh, I loved watching Slane's just manipulative ascent to the top. I it sounds really bizarre to say, but I thought it was brilliantly executed, and mm, of yeah. the boys, he definitely gets the better treatment. He's he's clearly his track was well thought out and a lot of fun to watch. I I loved watching him just rise his way there by doing anything that was necessary. It was it was rather ruthless how he got mm. there. Yeah, dealing with all these problems that come up pretty ruthlessly. Yeah, is a good word for it. Like nothing's going to stop him from from getting to. At his the same time, he never really goes completely over the top. Yes, he certainly pulls some some uh, underhanded things, but. It never feels like he's it never feels like he's really taking pleasure in any of it. He never becomes sadistic, which is in keeping which mm, is in keeping with his character, Correct. who is, you know, not I won't say honest, because he does an awful lot of lying, but he is he is true to his purpose, and he never he never wants to compromise that. I suppose. Yeah, yeah I don't know, I'll give you yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I would I would say that. So I think yeah. And now. <laughs> and now for the reckoning. Yeah, yeah, the bad the bad stuff. So oh. uh I'm I'm going to let you guys go into some of the things uh I guess militaristically that didn't fit properly because I know there were a lot of complaints about that. So I guess which one do you guys want to start with? I'm probably going to have to lead off with like the very beginning of the uh the show like we said it's 19 months later. And the the military situation is basically that, like, Earth and Vares are kind of on par with each other. And if anyone, you know, if you've seen up season one, you probably like, what How on Earth did it come to this? Like, Anaho was, yeah, how how did this even happen? Like, Anaho has been mad at, basically been out of commission until episode one of of season two. So he wasn't helping out. And this means that, like, somehow Earth 
rallied, fought all those various mechs, sort of to a standstill. Like there's no longer, they're no longer taking new territory. Constructed bases in space, despite all of the various landing castles that are up there. And they still have tons of, as many mechs and robots and pilots as they ever seem to need. Uh, the end of season one, I mean, they didn't have any communications. The military had almost totally been destroyed. And the Siberian base they were fighting from at the end was described as the last hope for all of humanity. And yet everything's just great, peachy. Yeah, aren't they like, two. Did, aren't they vacationing like, on a beach at the very beginning? Yes, they are yes, actually they. Yeah, that wasn't gratuitous at all. And like, and and not because like you know their their ship broke down and they're stuck there. Just you know because they're actually there's actually they can they can take leave because the war is going so well. So I, it just feels like we painted ourselves into a corner on that thing. And like I said, season two is a much more about the character drama than it is the military aspect. Unlike season one, but it still felt like a huge jump. That is that is rather odd. Yeah, I will admit. I think I mentally just skipped over all of that. <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> Later on, uh, militarily at least, we begin to wonder, what are the orbital knights who have landed on the Earth doing with the territory they've conquered? We never see anything happen. They're not really doing anything to secure their rule on Earth. I don't remember ever seeing the Versian like, ground troops, which we do know exist, run around on the surface or interact with the locals in any way. And this also makes the right. impact of Slane's final plan, which is to have all of the knights loyal to him take their mechs and land armies and everything else and, like, recommence the invasion of Earth. Like, everything's kind of gone a little bit uh, standoffish on the planet, and as most of the fighting is taking place in space, his plan is now just go back and invade Earth again some more. And... Right, or like, or like, take your armies and march out and terrorize people. Right, but like, where are these people? I don't even know who any of these knights yeah. are. Or where they're located. we get like we get flashes of them, and they're all you know they're all they've all had enough thought put into their design that you know that people wanted to do something with them, but we don't get to see any of it happen. It's just hi it's just right. him so yelling. It's almost at like they had to reset. Yeah, it's like him yelling like, at quick, people. Quick, just give Earth a bunch of stuff so that we're back to war. Right, but like you know, the weird thing was like this was Slane's big thing. It was sort of like you know with the, the moment when the Madman decides he's going to detonate his bomb or something. Like his evil plan is going to come to fruition. Slane, so we're going to have all of our guys attack, and it just didn't have any no any impact. I guess I didn't I didn't know what was it was it what was it at risk. I guess mm -hmm. so it's kind of weird. Um, yeah, so I guess yeah, stuff like that is is kind of where we were. Like you know, some of the landing castles have surrendered. Someone mentions like offhandedly, we never learn more. Stuff like that is, uh, I don't know, they give you little tidbits, but yeah. then they don't give you enough. To really and while I know to. that the war in space is pretty much where things are going, it doesn't seem like Vares is really even trying on Earth for the most part, with one or two exceptions. Uh, they, th they occasionally throw some dudes down, mostly it seems, to fight the Deucalion specifically. But uh, other than that, we don't see them do a lot on Earth. Yet we also see Earthbound bases open and exposed when we know that Verse has meteor-bombed things out of existence for looking at them funny. Right. Like, I don't know if they're trying to preserve the Earth's ecosystem or something, but both sides have these huge space bases now. There shouldn't be anything left on Earth that can fight back, including yeah. the landing castles. But they just kind of, I don't know, kind of sort of yeah. ignore that part. Yeah, mm -hmm. undeniably. It was, it was odd. Right. Uh, and for me, I guess thematically, they, they introduced these new like fighter craft called the Stygus Squadrons, which are basically version like regular mechs. They're not they're not super mechs like all the other ones. 
And thematically, I thought this was kind of a bad move on the part of the show. Like, this allows you to basically lower the stakes. It gives something for the characters that aren't Anaho to be able to fight and win against without, you know, being in danger or it seeming ridiculous. But the real strength of Season 1 had been that we had to team together with a bunch of weak mechs to take on a, one big, yeah. powerful mech. And now that you have, essentially, mooks that the regular characters can fight, it kind of takes the punch out yeah. of that. So I thought it was... I didn't really like that thematically, but mm. it's, it's a minor point. That is, yeah, I, I don't think I really noticed that. Like, that totally blew by me completely. I was like, oh, yeah, Stegis Squadron. Okay, now we have, like, squads. That's nice. Mm. Good job, Varys. I, <laughs> I didn't quite I think I just assumed they always had them and didn't send them out because they were always so assured of winning that they just kept sending out the super mechs to totally crush them. And then they were like, oh, no, we're going to actually have to send out fleets now because this is a real war and we can't just use up all of our super mechs, so. And actually, that would have been a really cool thing if they'd elaborated on it. Like, the war is going badly enough that we need, essentially, regular forces and we don't have enough Aldnoa cores to build super mechs. That would have been kind of neat, but it's just, it's like a more of a background detail than anything, you know, that they mm -hmm. bring to the front. Right. So, I know we're going to touch at the end about uh, how our predictions went, but I'm pretty sure all of us predicted somebody would die. <sighs> At least one of these jerks. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, come like, on. So, so let's just recap really quick. So, a Salem got shot in the back, through the chest, and then in the head. Inaho got shot in the head, and Salzbaum definitely got shot in the chest. So one of these guys at the end in Salzbaum's castle had to have died, and all of our money was on... I think a Salem for the most part. Yeah, I thought all three of them were gone, honestly. Like, who's coming back? Like, Sazbaum was yeah. really messed yep. up, too. Yep, and, and who survives? Everybody. Everybody all three survives. Of them. Not a single, like, not a single death in the whole lot of them. It just, it, right. it beggars belief. And now, to be fair... Uh, Salzbaum is shown walking with a cane and still, you know, limping along. He's clearly barely recovered after a full year and a half. And Asylum is in some sort of, like, regeneration tank. Yeah, she's in a, she's in a back back to, I think, or whatever it's called, yeah. Back but even, tank, yeah. even with that, it's like, you got shot twice, he got shot in the dome, Salzbaum was gut shot, everything about this should be, like, one of you jerks should have been dead. Right, and like, and look at the situation they're in. Like, they got into that place by crashing their spaceship into the side of it. There aren't, like, medevacs nearby. They're in the middle of the Siberian blizzard. And everything's on fire. They've just had a battle with their mechs in the hallways of this mech. Like, no one's coming to help these guys. Right. And yet, all of them make it out, which means somehow... Like, I guess basically what? Um, Slain pulls Salzbaum into his newly activated mech mm -hmm. and flies off. And then I guess the crew of the Deucalion comes in right. and rescues Anaho. But it's just, like, there's there's other guys in the landing castle. Like, it's just ridiculous to even imagine how that happened. How do they even get yeah. the Deucalion out of there? Just, they just gloss mm -hmm. over all of it. I, I just don't even it know. Just, it, but it, it was, it was ridiculous. It yes. removed the tension. It lowered the, uh, it lowered the stakes because early on it had been very much, this war is incredibly dangerous. We lose what we thought was going to be a continuing side character in episode one. One of uh, Inaho's friends just gets vaporized, and they're lose they lose like uh, they lose almost all of their support squads on a regular basis. And yeah, the characters have plot armor, but not a huge amount. Most of it's because they actually you know 
Inaho is smart enough to figure out how to fight these things. Now, everyone's been on death. Everyone, with the exception of Slain, has been on death's door and ready to, you know, ready to cross into the hereafter. And here we are yanking them back as if nothing had happened. Yeah, watching the show in order without this break is going to be kind of jarring, oh, yeah. I think, for people. Like, episode 13 has this huge amount of drama, and then everyone's dead, and you're like, what's going to happen next? And, you know, we had to wait half a year to find out. So there's all this, like, guessing. You watch the show now, it's like the next episode, everyone's alive yep. again. And you're like, what? I mean, we were shocked, but it's going to be, I don't know, even... I can't tell if it's going to be more of a letdown or not, but it's still yeah. going to be ridiculous. I, I, th- I thought it was a pretty big letdown. It was very strange that everybody managed to survive... And, you know, even if they did, you were hoping that there was some importance to having everybody survive, and we'll talk about it later. It it wasn't all that important that all three of them made it out. Hmm. Especially you with Salem, like, somehow. Oh my, you're the like, least a Salem, to me, was a glorified goldfish throughout most of the show. She's just in there in this tank, and Slane goes and cries about her every once in a while, and you're like, honey, I mean, I, I don't even really know what your role is in this. And like, yeah, even when she breaks out of, you know, she finally gets out of the tank or whatever, she has a role so minimal until right up at the end that it's like, you just could have, yeah, you could have had this part playing, played by a trained goldfish or something. Yeah. Like, we spend a lot of time agonizing over her, which is good for the dramatic elements of the show, but she doesn't get any, like, screen time yeah, or development pretty or much. Right. Speaking of uh, how characters are reintroduced, she doesn't come back in until, I'd say, what, about the halfway point? Maybe even later. Yeah. Maybe even later. Yeah, Slightly so we're talking, later. Like, we're talking like, what, 18 she wakes up? Something like 18, that, yeah. something like that. And then, like, maybe maybe 19 or 20, she actually she, right. she, you know, does something. Right. She's, she's bedridden for an episode. So she's, yeah, so she's barely in it uh, at all in a functional capacity. Inaho, when he is reintroduced in the first episode of season two is this dramatic return that comes out of uh, that comes out of nowhere I and mean, the fighting this you know like i said there's this mech that can freeze the temperature around him and do all sorts of crazy stuff and he's just ripping through uh the uh the mook earth mechs cool setup you know kind of mirrors the uh seemingly unwinnable fight at the beginning of season 1 then inaho drops in watches a bunch of the red shirts get killed solves the problem in less than 5 minutes where it took him hours to figure it out maybe even days to figure out the first one and he's in his mech, running across this battlefield, firing grenades, using the heat of the explosion to keep his mech from freezing, which admittedly is kind of cool, but he's spinning around, dancing about, lever-cocking his uh, twin grenade launchers like he's frigging Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, and it just... <laughs> Mixed with, like, uh, what's her name there? From, oh, God, uh, yeah, it just... Asuka. It... Guys, that makes him the the ultimate action hero. <laughs> oh, the, yes, the last. I suppose hero. it does, but it's it's completely out of character. It's way too flashy for someone who's all about you know strict logic and all of that, and it sort of sets the tone of the show in the wrong. It it, it cranks the dial up to shonen, and it's really hard to sort of. Dr- it, it, the show tries to drag it back after that now and again. But it's always stuck a little too far on that side of things for what I had hoped to be somewhat more of a grounded look at the giant fighting robot sort of style genre that we were going for. I'll agree with that. I actually wrote when I was writing notes for for this show to talk about later on after episode one happened when Inaho comes back. I wrote there is so much shonen happening right now. Like that is actually on my notes. It, it happened. There it is right there. And so I know there it is right there. So 
I want to kind of move into Slane's plan mm. because I thought this was interesting and we really got to talk about it. Yeah. And it's the main focus of the show. Right, obviously. it is really the main thrust of the show. So here's how I saw the show and I think looking at the way we're kind of interpreting it here, I saw the show very differently than I feel like you guys did. Mm. So I watched the intro, you watched the ending song, and from the first two or three episodes, I really understood that this was totally different than what we had experienced in the first season. So the first season, I would classify as a military drama. It didn't execute all of its drama properly, especially in terms of character development, but it was, in effect, a military drama. Season two is most definitely, to me, a character drama. They poured all of their energy into two buckets, and those two buckets are the boys. This was the boys' show. A Salem is there to be a glorified goldfish, but the boys were the most important pieces of this. So you're watching Slane's incredible descent downward, or, I mean, upward in the ranks of Vares, but downward as a person. He's really right. starting to lose mm -hmm. it. And Inaho, at the same time, is almost more lost than he was in the first season. Like, he's better at character interaction. Like, he smiles, I think, more, which a was little bit. weird. He, he can make, as someone in the show actually says, he can make small talk. Yes. Like, this, I know. This Congratulations. It's probably his biggest achievement. Congratulations, yeah, Inaho. Yeah. You've leveled up to small talk. So he's he's capable of some human interaction, but he has the analytical engine in his head now, which he's almost a robot, almost pushing the robot limit. And he was practically a robot was in the first season. Now he's a super robot with all this analysis. And so yeah, the deal with the eye is that like it can like if he gives part of his brain to it, it gets sort of it can get stronger by using that as essentially I don't know like more processor power. So he tends he gives more and more of it over over the course of the show. Right, and the. You're supposed to be afraid of the fact that he's going to lose himself to the eye. We'll get into that so in more that detail was... in a little bit, but you were saying... Right, that was a yeah. disappointment. But I think that the essence of watching Slane's plan come to fruition, to me, or fruition, was the most fascinating thing in the world. I mean, he just manipulated everybody you can think of. There's a new princess in town, uh, Lemrina. I want to... I want to have a few moments to talk about her a little later. But she, it turns out that she is the bastard daughter of the, I guess it'd be the emperor of Varys. Because yeah. it'd be a Salem's well, father. Great. And He's so, the, he, they're both uh, his granddaughters, actually. Right. Yeah, but it's it's a Salem's father. What is his title? I don't know. She's princess, so he'd be... I, I, I believe, didn't her, didn't... Her father died in the... Yes, in Heaven's Fall. I suppose, Fall. yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so. I guess Regent, whatever you want to call him. He's not, you know, he's sure. not really important uh, other than... Right. Yeah, he, he would have been king, but he, but he's, de he's dead before the exactly. first season. Exactly. Oh. So he, he has this other daughter who you've never heard about from season one, and she's there, and she, of course, has the power of Aldenoah having royal blood in her. And he manipulates her because she's got a, a crush on him. He manipulates just every one of the other counts. He manipulates just everybody he can touch to get himself to the top. And I just thought it was brilliant. Like, I'm not sure how he got there. Because, I mean, he must have been reading the, the Dictator's Guide <laughs> to Being Brilliant in those 19 <laughs> months or something. Yeah, I'm really. sure Salzbaum has that line around somewhere. Yeah. 
Right. And Sazbaum is still alive to learn from as a mentor, and he was—he had a lot of twisted mm-hmm. schemes of his own. Right. So. so there, there was a lot of ways, and maybe he could have learned it. I mean, it's probably a little bit unrealistic, but the fact that Inaho gets the analytical engine, Slane needed something, and I liked that that something was more human. That was human manipulation, and his own thoughts had to get him there. So I loved watching this, and it, it, it was slow rolling. I mean, just the, yeah, the whole yeah. show is his plan just coming into play, piece by agonizing piece. Right, and he's and he's looked ahead and seen, like, he's kind of figured out most of what's, like, what could happen. He has all these contingencies, and he, he does a very good job of being, like, obviously really brilliant, but it's it's not unbelievable. It's not like you say, oh, come on, no one could have ever guessed that, at least for most That's of the true. things he does. right. So I suppose there's another thing that we did like. Slane's Slane's scheming is handled fairly well, though I think that it goes... It feels like it goes really hard against the somewhat naive and otherwise very straightforward and honest character that we see at the very beginning, who's pretty much, like, his only defining trait in Season 1 was utterly loyal to the princess. And... Right, which he still has in the second season, and like it's sort of a twisted version. Right, of that it becomes incredibly him. misguided. I suppose, I suppose so. And yes, it has been a year and a half, and you know he's do- he's growing under uh, very extreme circumstances. It just feels, I don't know, it feels like such a hard shift that it is kind of part of the jarring uh, change that you said, Scott. If you were to watch these things back to back, it would feel very uh, disconcerting. Mostly because his scheming nature suddenly seems to kick in the moment that he shoots Sazbaum. And, well, it's, and there's a lot of, like, sort of little hints and, like, knowing eye glances back and forth. But he kind of is acting the naive guy or right up until that moment. So you can see it coming a little bit, but the the depth to which he immediately descends yeah. is pretty impressive. So it, it's a little yeah, clumsily a little handled, but it is overall a very interesting and uh, a I I think we all had some uh, enjoyment of just watching Slain, as you said, both rise and fall at the same time. Agreed. I, I also want to point out something really quick. When Sazbaum dies, um, so it's a little ridiculous, or a lot of ridiculous. I'll, le- I'll let you guys go yeah. for it. It's a lot of ridiculous in terms of how Slane ends up killing off Sausbaum. But after he does so, right before the the bombs go off or his swords go off and he kills Sausbaum, he's like, did you ever think I would forgive you for shooting a Salem? I've just been waiting this entire time to take you out, pretending to be loyal. And there's this shot where the camera is to the side, inside the cockpit, looking at Slane, and for just... Those couple seconds, he's drawn such that his eyes and his facial structure look exactly like Crutio. Crutio was the guy who used to torture him, who he worked under, who owned his mech, the Tharsis, before him. But there's a shot of his face, and artistically, he looks so much like Crutio. He has this, like, ruthless look to him. And I thought that was amazing that they took the time to make that happen because it was like the artistry just fed right into the moment and his transformation, which while sudden, it was neat to see them put that element in there. Yeah. I'm going to have to go it back and It was really that, cool. Actually. And I mean, <laughs> it was good to see him get sort of his Count of Monte Cristo moment right there as he, you know, as at least one element of his plan finally comes to a head and he is able to 
open himself up in this regard, and even if it is to someone that he utterly hates. Yeah, it's certainly a rare kind of show where you can root for both the protagonist and the antagonist at the same time. Like, Death Note comes to mind a little bit, but there isn't mm. much out there like it. Right. So yeah. it requires some pretty impressive writing to get it to work And out. before we get yep. too far away from it, we should probably discuss how he kills Sazbaum, because... Ah, yes. Go for, for the gold, for, for all of the good Very stuff well. that we've actually just been discussing, this was one of the points that stressed, that stretched believability a bit to the breaking point. Uh... Scott, why don't you uh, why don't you roll us through it? Sure, it's like it's the beginning of one of these episodes, and you don't know that Selene is, is planning really anything at this point other than being a a knight under Sawsbomb. Uh, he's just got his mech, and he goes out into space and just fires his machine guns into space for I don't know, like a bunch, like a while. And there's there's nobody out there. There's no battle. There's nothing going on. And then he just kind of like. He says something like, I wonder if it's even going to work. I, even I can't see that far in the future because the Tharsis' power is to look a short, short distance into the future. And then he heads back. And then, like, later, I think much later in the same episode, there's a huge space battle between um, the Earth forces and bears. And Sausbaum, he, he like, his, he's fighting Anaho, not slain, actually. And Anaho, like, manages to beat him up and break his... He has the, the shield that allows him to absorb any attack. And uh, Anaho takes it out, leaving his mech more or less paralyzed in space. And then backs off. And at that exact moment, all of those bullets that he shot come back out of nowhere and hit that exact spot in space and damage Sausbaum's mech to the point that it's presumably the that it's they useless. had uh, he had fired them more or less spinward in orbit around the Earth, and it then came back to a, a close by point where he knew somehow magically that Sausbaum was going to be in that exact square of space. At that exact moment, and that Anaho would disable his, and that Anaho would disable his shield, right. so otherwise he wouldn't have been hurt. And on top of that, the first salvo damages the mech such that it won't work and allows him to get in his, you know, his last moments talking to Sausbaum before the, a second salvo he fired, you know, finally destroyed. He gave, him, the mech. He gave so himself a dramatic pause. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so it's it, it's ridiculous, and immediately it makes you think, wow, if you could see that far ahead in time, because this is like hours and hours and hours later that this battle takes place. Like, if you can see that far ahead in time, nothing should have ever been able to stop you. So it's 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 hard to believe. I mean, it makes for a great dramatic scene. And I think that's when you really got to realize that this is about the drama and not about realism, really. Anymore. Right, it's all thrown out. It's a character drama set against a military background. And I, there, there was another totally absurd point, is that um, after going into battle with the Terrans over something... Uh, Slain is still being made fun of, called a Terran dog by the other counts. Oh, and yes. uh, Salzbaum's like, all right, you know how this is going to roll? I'm going to declare that Slain is my son now. Oh, yes, the, the even more ridiculous And part so that actually happens in that same episode you guys are talking about. So when Salzbaum dies, as his son, Slain now inherits his landing castle and all of his assets. So it was like right. okay, including including his me like, like everything, just all this ridiculous stuff. The Stygis squadrons, the entire moon base, is right? He just he owns it all now, and it's like, well, this was a very very convenient. No way one is in the slightest bit happen. suspicious that you were that you were declared the uh, the heir to this guy's entire estate, literally hours before he died in a hail of gunfire in a battle that think, no one saw. I think what's most tragic too is that. 
this could have so easily been avoided. This wasn't another we painted ourselves into a corner affair. This was like, okay, had Salzbaum declared himself your father, now this looks like a great opportunity. So once they got into the space battle with Inaho, had Slain, like, fired these things maybe, like, 30 seconds out into the middle of nowhere looking like he was shooting an enemy and then had them whip around and shoot Salzbaum at the right moment or waited until Inaho broke his shield and then fired them off such that they blew up Salzbaum, it would have worked beautifully. It would have been like, I have been waiting so long to kill you, and here's my chance, and I'm going to take it. And it would have been so well executed. So the fact that they, I don't know, they chose to make him have this weird ESP for that moment, and never again, was odd from a writing perspective, because it it didn't make any sense. Yeah, like, what were we going to do if he didn't make you his son? Like, his thing would have blown up, and then mm-hmm. I guess that would have been it. And then you would have looked like, like a super traitor, because everyone thought you were anyway. Right, it wouldn't have really helped yeah. Slane's position either. Because, so, like, Salzbaum at that point was actually protecting him from all the other jerks that hated right, him. Right, right, it would have so, been bad. Yeah. So, alright, so with my love of character drama, I'm going <sighs> to now blitz through the fact that because the boys are the essence of this show everybody else just gets sideswiped. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so hard. Like, tragically. Tragically sideswiped. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna blitz through this, because we could, we could just talk all day. So, yeah. Riot, Martian Trader Girl, is, oh, is Riot. just, I know, it's so sad. She's conflicted, because as a Martian, she's fighting for the Terrans, and we're talking, you know, life and death here. She's shooting other Martians. She feels no loyalty to them, but she feels, like, dirty as a person. Because she's like, I'm just like them. I'm manipulative and horrible. Wait, and, and I hate and them. I hate and them. I want to kill them, but I am a Right, Martian. and so I like, hate me, too. And she has this yeah, hate huge me too. conflict yeah. moment, right? And she and Anaho are standing there, and Anaho's like, you're not evil. And she's like, I am. You're not evil. I am. She's you're not evil. She's, she's like, <gasps> cry, cry, cry. And this never comes up again. Never. Like, and not just not just in the sense that like Riot is fixed, quote unquote, and like is is okay with herself again, but like she almost never has another speaking line for the rest of Correct. the show. Correct. She is just a like she's a robot in a in another like a robot piloting a robot that just fights for the war. And exactly. She has else. no no other interesting lines or no other interesting moment to be had. Freaking Marito and Magbridge. They, oh gosh, like, first of all, Marito's PTSD has been cured. I think you guys will remember from season yeah, which, one. Which I, can, which I can understand. I can it's been too. Months and we it's were working been 19 months. It. I just, it was sad that it happened off screen. And actually, there was yeah. this moment that infuriated me because he's in the mech and he has this flashback to him killing his tank mate, John, again. And the, the he's like, I'm never going to be freed of this PTSD, basically. I'm doomed. And the doctor is like, you know, this might be something that's coming to you now that your brain is using to wake you up. So it was almost this moment where, like, John was helping him despite the tragedy, and that could have been a really powerful healing moment where he's like, all right, this tragedy with him ruined my life for a while, but now my brain and my psyche is using it to help me. It's almost like he's forever my tank mate coming back to help me. And they never touch on this again, ever. Like, it happens once, they both drink whiskey to it, and this never gets talked about ever again. It's so distressing. And then, horribly enough, like, Dan, I know you had made a comment that you really liked the fact that in season one, Magbridge and Marito have this, like, 
we're going to work together, but I don't like you. Like professional, professional respect, respect. Yeah, personal respect. dislike. Yeah. Sometimes you, you don't you don't have to like the people you serve beside, but you need to trust them. Right, and they go off to a meeting together, and all the other female characters on the bridge are like giggling to each they're other. A oh, yeah. They're a Twitter. Yeah, they're about like, it. oh yeah. my, they went to the meeting together. We're the two most senior like, officers on this was... ship. Why are you think that? What do you think we went? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, she's got her second, her like bridge second in command there, and that's what they're all like. Oh my goodness, she didn't go with um, whatever yeah. the, the other bridge girl's name yeah, was. Yeah, and I mean, their conversations were no good either. Like... Pretty much rehashes of season one. Yeah, but they never went. Well, yeah, but anywhere. even even then, only for the first like oh, yeah. three and then episodes, they kind of just shut their again. mouths and you know toddle along. It's it's just they, so well, unfortunate yeah. that that it works out that way. Like, and then we mentioned Com. Com is never a character. Nina. He he keeps being like on screen, but he never really gets anywhere. Other than mm-hmm. man, you yeah, sure? Yeah, exactly. Are. Nina is Ultimate Bridge Bunny version two point uh, Doesn't like her uniform because it isn't cute. Shut up! You're in the military. You have been for over a year and a half. Oh, Nina. Like, yeah. you, can, you can get past this. Nina, Come on. Oh, uh, what else? Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Even the Vares people don't get any development. Like, forget them. It's like, it's, it is the Slane show. Slane has, he, yeah, he has his uh, second in command. He just knocks everybody he has his... That's right. Like, oh, yeah, Hark Light. Light. Poor Hark Light. So Hark Light is kind of like Slane all over again. It's like Slane's getting to relive himself, only Hark Light is him. And he he rises him to the top and he really like makes him his second in command and his most trusted person. And Hark Light in the end just like sacrifices himself for Slane and flies off into a battle and dies. Like there's never a never There's no purpose to it. His entire Oh, hard well, he, He's I'm just sorry. he's just perfectly loyal. He's perfectly loyal and he serves to kind of he'll be see he'll be see say what Slane is doing right. for the benefit of the audience. So he's, he's a yeah, he's not really he, a, his own he performs a function and that's all. He has no he has no discernible personality, Ugh. likes or dislikes. He is just he is just a robot that operates under Slane's orders effectively. Oh my gosh. Right. All right, now, now I'm going to have my moment really quick. Freaking Lemrina Hime, that poor, poor oh, plot no. device of oh, a girl. Dear. So we talked about who she is, but she comes in and she's like a fangless snake. Hmm. She's constantly moving around and she hates a Salem because her whole life, apparently, because she was never shown ever outside of this episode, like this season, she has hated her older sister forever, having known of her, and she's had to live in the shadows her whole life, because she can't, you know, nobody can know that there's a bastard princess running around. So you're like, aha! She's like, aha, I hate you, Asalem, you've always had everything I have. And at one point she, like, rolls in, and Asalem's still in the tank, and it looks like she's gonna kill her. Like, she knows Slane's in love with her, and she's in love with Slane, because she sees this, like, lost puppy in him that she's always felt. She's like, we are outsiders. We don't belong. And that's why I have chosen you to be my person, and I'm going to follow you to the bottom, no matter where you go. And you're like, all right, this is going to be awesome and tragic. And, like, you know she's she's going to lose out. And she's almost like that Shirley character in the, like, that Lelouch Rebellion show. Mm. Where you're like, she's probably going to die. And there's going to be this tragic moment where, like, Slane has betrayed her to the point where he's going to be, like, holding her or something. And she, he's, he's going to have to fake it. Because he's just, he's dragged her down that and far. guess what doesn't but happen? No, she, yeah, she, like... Almost kills a Salem, and she's like, nah, just kidding, you're still my sister. And then she, like, 
leaves Salem at one point after she wakes up, and then she almost marries Slane because she declares him her husband while she's pretending to be a Salem. She can use this hollow shield and actually manipulate herself so that she looks and sounds like a Salem. Which is a huge plot device. Oh my gosh, they just use her as this plot device. And in the end, in the end, here we go. So there's this moment where Slane's gonna betray her and she's like, Slane, I'll go with you anywhere. And he's like, no, you see... You're just gonna go away now. And he just floats off in the moon base, defeated. And she's like, no, 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 no. And then they just stick her on a transport ship. And she's never seen again. She doesn't even get a last episode where they flashed all the characters. She doesn't even get that. She just never comes back. The most tragic plot device ever. I'm sorry, Lemrina. I'm so sorry. And boy, and she is a plot device because she's wheelchair bound and like, there is so much technology in this show. To have somebody that is wheelchair bound is like mm-hmm. almost unthinkable. But she, they, they do it anyway to make her more tragic and to allow her to be contrasted with the Salem. So it's purely right. for plot It's reason. ridiculous. You know what else is ridiculous? In Naho's freaking eye. Uh, that eye can do yeah. anything, anything. So just the whole show, he's like calculating the density, calculating the mass, calculating everything, calculating, 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 shoot over there, drive over here. At one point, the Ducalion loses all of its navigation systems and Nina's freaking out. And he's like, don't worry, my eye can determine exactly how far from the ground we are and our bearing and I can see through the fog. Don't worry about it. And I was like, what? <laughs> Okay, does your eye also, like, make everybody breakfast? Like, this, what does it not do? The answer, by the way, is nothing. Uh, it does everything. Like, it, it, does, it does everything. It is the sole reason, like, Earth, Wind, Thor exactly, is that yes. eye. Like, that's it. And here's the thing. that Like, there, there's supposed to be this whole uh, kind of building tragedy trade-off that he's trade-off, feeding more we'll and more of his brain to this thing. But in the end, when that does catch up with him and he kind of shuts down, the analytical engine just kind of takes over his body for a little while, delivers the exact message that he would want, he would have wanted it to say, and then keeps him alive until help arrives. It at no point does anything against him. He occasionally gets some, like, powerful migraines, but they never happen in battle or at a crucial moment. They only ever happen when he's, like getting from point A to point B and only serve to like maybe slow him down by a second or two. The benefits of this thing. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, pretty, the benefits it's of this thing weak. so far outweigh the downsides and it's, and yeah, this is sort of an experimental unit they explain, but it's well known enough technology that like the shipboard doctor is able to like take a look at it and, you know, give diagnoses and all of that. If it's, yeah, as long as he's like, oh no, what is an analytical engine? He's like, oh yeah, analytical engines. You gotta be careful. And right, he keeps saying that every time the doctor's just like, don't give too much of yourself to the analytical engine. He's like, I oh, know, doctor. And it, it never yeah. matters. Ever. Never. Except that he, except that he keeps oh, yeah. getting better he just, and better. He only like, ever like, gets that's, better. That's the like, the benefits of this thing so far outweigh the downsides that I refuse to believe that the Earth military at this stage, when they're still fighting a desperate war, has not crammed these things into every single soldier. Or at the very least, put them in, like, equipped the cataphracts with them. Like, there's no reason this... Well, it might it might need I the suppose, brain to work or something. Like, there I could suppose, be some but even so, like, if you had one but... dude on every ship with this kind of thing, you could never lose a fight because you would have perfect data every single time. And if you linked those things together, oh, speaking of linking together, 
I mean, although, although, like, honestly, like, before we get to that part, how did Earth even make this thing? It's like Aldnoa Drive level technology, and they don't even care. Yeah. Like, what the heck? But yes, okay. Oh, speaking Lord, of linking things together, <laughs> take us away. All right, so there's this guy that can, like, his power and his mech is to make perfect quantum copies of himself at the rate of, like, one every two seconds or something. Which means, like, he's not, like, making disposable copies. Every single version that he makes is 100% him, including his brain and all of his... his everything. And they can also make copies of themselves. So, like, they're like, oh, no, we can't blow them up fast enough to ever stop the guy. That's, like, the major problem they're having. And... First of all, how does this power work? Like, I'm, it, he, they fight him twice, and like, what happens after the battle? There's like a hundred perfect copies of this guy standing around that he needs to they like have go a half kill life? one by one. Oh, like we're watching the, like we're watching the Prestige or something. Yeah, do they have a half life? I kept waiting for them to like start dying off of their own accord because it wouldn't work. But no, they can just swarm infinitely. Which of course brings to question: Why didn't Earth already lose? You can just make a billion mechs and win, and nothing can stop it you. It looked like they were made out know. of paper mache, though. Like normal oh, cataphracts were sure. shooting them with low-level bullets and laser beams, and they were just exploding. That's true. And I was like, okay, so you can create perfect copies of yourself, but they're all made of paper mache. So I'm guessing Which you had to right. Have, you had to yeah. at least have that because I think that was maybe the only reason mm. that couldn't work. Yeah, but they show this one part, like, he's attacking, like, a regular Earth mech, and so the Earth mech, like, it, it's jumping at him to hit him with, like, a sword or something. And, like, he shoots it, and it blows up. And as it blows up, that it makes a copy of itself just above that one. And then he shoots that one to death, and it makes another copy and kills the mech that's shooting it. Like, it's so unstoppably ridiculous that even if it is made of paper mache, like, he can make exactly. it it's just, Exactly. And how does that implicate him? Like you said, there's, like, a billion of him running around? Like, what, is, what does that do? I, it didn't make any sense. Yeah, but, like, does Vers need manpower? Okay, they've got it. Do they need, like, guys to do construction work? They're yeah, making... No like, it's just yeah, they're making, uh, stormtroopers. Making story it was just ridiculous. So, anyway, how are they going to stop this guy? Like, like, they're running out of mechs. And so, Anaho goes... No, no, all right, guys. Give me control of every single gun on the battlefield. Right, then, with his like, eye, like, oh, he controls like, every with his gun. Eye. Like, and they, they run it through headquarters, and they give somehow give him personal control of everybody. And he shoots every single quantum copy in the same exact instant, and, like, with, with no visible effort on his part. I mean, he's now, like, a <laughs> Gary Stew of the highest caliber. <laughs> and at that point, you're watching the show, and you're like, nothing could ever challenge this guy again. I it was just the lowest point of the show for me. I could not even believe they pulled this. It was it was pretty so. bad. And speaking of ridiculous things that undo something seemingly impossible to beat, would you guys like to know you 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 people who are listening, would you like to know how this elaborate plan that Slane puts together is defeated? It's defeated by Mailwage. <laughs> <laughs> oh and this God. is what the second so, or third marriage in this uh in this series by the way right so there's there's an absurd scene where i i actually was okay with it so lemrina disguised as a salem declares that she is engaged to slain and that way nobody can ever question what's going on so everybody's a little bit suspicious in the beginning but as soon as he's quote-unquote engaged to a salem they're like oh well he's gonna become the new emperor i can't question this isn't him. super suspicious and after you know his father his adopted father died mysteriously and uh gave him all of his things right 
Also, you may recognize. Right. I mean, you may also recognize this plot, cool plot as the movie. villain's plot from uh, from frigging uh, the Great Mouse Detective. Thanks, yes, Radigan. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, it. I thought it was was kind of neat, but it was all part of the manipulation game. It also played into a little bit of like Lemarina's secret yeah. fantasies. The first time it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't really, like Lemarina secretly wants to marry. She thinks that now he's coupled to her. All too. right, fine. Yeah. Which in theory he is. So it's moving along, it's fine. Then a Salem like splits herself off from Slain after she revives, and she's she gets picked up by none other than Crutio's eldest son, who comes from nowhere, might oh, I yeah. add, and is like, I'm super loyal to the Emperor. Yeah, who I should note is lying comatose at home and like, he's, he's got not even like Alzheimer's at this point. Like, such advanced Alzheimer's, he can't even tell who he's talking to, and is basically babbling yes. to himself. So, like, but that guy is in no condition Elnoy, to do yeah. anything. So it's it's a tragedy, but he's super loyal to the Emperor, and therefore a Salem. And so in this redonkulously dumb plot that somehow involves Inaho, Inko, and... Oh, oh, poor poor Inko. Inaho mostly, his super eye, and Crutio comes in at the very end, and they take her off on a transport ship, which of course has camouflage, and they disappear off the radar, and she's like, okay, we're in trouble now, because Slain basically has an iron grip on all of the Vergian hierarchy. Everybody is working with him, and obeys him, and is loyal to him. How how am I going to reestablish peace because even if i were to make a statement it's not gonna work nobody's gonna believe in me right now and so she's like all right we're gonna have to come up with a plan and this was gonna be awesome because like you guys spent so much time coming up with this brilliant schema of how slain is gonna rise to the top and okay how are you gonna undo it like undo your masterwork no she gets on the comms and she's like i am princess of salem i declare my engagement to crutio's son Everybody should listen now, and I, I declare and, peace. And I'm now, yeah, the, I'm now the empress. Yeah, like, I declare peace. And everyone's like, say what? It must be a Salem. Yeah. And then they all just believe her, and everybody sort of stops, and the rest of the people who are still tragically loyal to Slain fly off into an impossible battle and die. I'm talking to you, Harklight. Hmm. And then it, that's it. Yeah, really. That's, what I, that's how they undo Slain's brilliant plan with marriage yeah. of the dumbest capacity yeah. which it should be noted like she tried this already in season one and it didn't work because Kurte, like uh Salzbaum had guys on the moon that were intercepting the transmission and they didn't want to stop mm. fighting anyway i think she might have tried it again and it didn't work like every time it just brought more tragedy onto earth but the third time when there's a man involved like bam everyone's totally loyal yeah, everyone's, That's it. everyone's like, all over it. this so we're it's so dumb. So we're coming to the end here, and I think the heartbreaker for me was that dumping all that energy into the boys didn't pay off. So the finale comes, Slain is just determined to die at this point. And, you know, he's he just flies off to fight Inaho when he watches all of his people die. He flies off to fight Inaho and he's just like, whatever, we're totally gonna duke it out in this ultimate, you know, death With match. With Inaho's, like, and then crazy he's... sword mech com- uh, combo package that he suddenly has. gracious. And, uh. Yeah, because Kam is apparently a genius. And 
Uh, so they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. So Slane is going to lose, and he's going to fall into Earth's atmosphere, and Anaho comes down and catches him, and he's like, I'm going to slow your descent with my magic eye power. And of course, they, they land on Earth, and Anaho's standing over him in the same way that Slane was standing over Anaho in Season 1, and you're like, and he's got a gun, and you're like, shoot him. And Slane points to his forehead, which is like, clean shot, take me out. And it was this moment where he really needed to shoot him. I'm going to sound horrible, but he needed to shoot him to just make the ending fit for all the effort they had poured in there. Because Slane was such a for- foregone character. It needed to happen. And it just it just didn't. And so, in the end, you, you don't know what happens. And then everything's gray. And a Salem builds this giant, like, Alnoa-powered reactor or something on Earth. This display of peace. You're not even sure what's going on with her marriage. Inaho shows up at this super prison, and it turns out he's taken the analytical engine out, because, I don't know, I guess it's banned at school where he could know all the answers in advance or something. <laughs> and I, I don't even know. So he's taken it out, he's got an eye patch now, and Slain is there, so you realize he hasn't shot him, and he's sitting there and he's just like, so, Slain, you gonna eat anything? You wanna play chess? Slain's like, why am I alive, seriously? Why didn't you shoot me? And he's like, because a Salem asked me not to. And then Slane just starts crying, and that's your dramatic payoff. That's that's it. That's the finale. And then you just watch like music plays, a Salem's wandering around, and Slane is being walked to prison forever. And Inaho, I don't know, goes off to work in an office or something. Like I, don't, I can't even fathom. What happens like, at the end of that? Because like the, yeah, the whole show like like Inko's been kind of trying to get with with uh yeah, like Inko's Inaho, really got a crush. Not on even him. that no. pays off. Like we don't even see no. that happen. He just kind of drives off to go. Yeah, whatever. I don't I don't know what's going on. Yeah, Yuki just drives him off, and you're like, well, Inko doesn't even get her moment. You're right, and I think maybe you could play into the fact that after all of that, Slane just hits the most rock bottom he could have possibly hit, which is. He's so in love with the princess, right? He's never going to see her again. He's just going to die in this prison with, I guess, the tragic knowledge that she still cared even when he went crazy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you could sort of take that as a payoff, but not the boy's interaction is no payoff whatsoever. It's just, it's so not worth it. Good gracious. And they even drew an Edel Ritzo. Oh, like, Edel Ritzo. Oh, that poor thing. Like, yeah, she was in the show the whole time, and her entire payoff for being a character and staying by Slane was that so she could impassionately defend his actions to a Salem, which maybe was the reason why she saved him and why he's so tragically unhappy yeah. now. So good work. Yeah, Edel Ritzo. You, you should have just stuck to driving the giant stuck, stuck with the Jeep, Hummer the yeah. to keep on keeping mm-hmm. on. So, huh. oh. anyway, so what was... Uh, I got to talk too much, so what was the kind of thoughts on the ending for you guys i'd say uh i agree that the payoff for most of the characters is just sort of petering out like we do get to see what a salem is doing but we have no idea what her marriage is like we've no oh, yeah. what's, what's his face is standing i guess they're still, I think they're still married uh but like i mean she's the empress now it's kind so. of hard to back out of but that you don't one. get to see really much of what the crew is doing you have you have 
even less of an idea of what has happened to uh, Limrina or pretty much anyone from the Verse side. I do actually kind of like the fact that Slain is in jail, because for once one of these characters doesn't just get, like, left to live his own life somewhere far away. No, you're, he's like, you, you committed, if not war crimes... Definitely a ton, definitely a ton of things that get you thrown in that thrown in jail or tried in the Hague. So uh, we at least get to see that there are consequences for this, even if we don't necessarily agree that they're what should have happened. But uh, yeah, it just it's sort of it sort of just ends with a it ends with a predictable fight and a denouement that leaves you feeling like what was the point of all of that? What why did we watch this to the end? Right, and I, I feel almost like like the ending was. I mean, I guess you could say like either like realistic, like you know, there isn't always a, a storybook ending to these stories, and maybe that's the point they're trying to make. Like he didn't get the princess; they didn't ride off into the sunset. Right, she's over there. He can't really be with her. Like that's never going to work out. And I, it, I get where they're going with the bittersweet kind of ending, but I agree there's really no payoff with Slain. Yeah, sure, he's in jail, and that's great, and like. Uh, it, it, was, it was like watching the first X-Men movie, right, where Magneto's in that prison. It was like almost the same kind of deal. Like, I'll visit you every once in a while, but you're stuck here for life. Right, right. So, yeah, not not the best uh, payoff. It's, I almost had the feeling that, like, uh, what's his name there? Like, the direct, original director, Gennar Robochi, like, knew where he wanted the show to end, and, like, they just didn't know how to get there in a in a way that really made it feel good, but they still got there, even if it, yeah. you know, was kind of a disaster. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was odd. So yeah. we've uh, we've gone on on this for quite for quite a while. Some of the good, some of the bad. But let's let's give it our final thoughts at this point. Uh, like we described at the beginning, the show looks really good throughout more or less the whole thing. Very rarely is there any dri- any drop in uh, mm-hmm. art quality. The battles are cool, but overall they they lack soul. Everything feels, I guess very sterile and by the book like you said like they're trying to get to an ending that they know but they're not sure how to get there so they're playing it safe right and also it's all about like i said it's about the character drama not the mech fight so yeah and that is kind of difficult when one of your two primary characters is a super analytical unemotional protagonist who's slowly turning into a robot well yeah or like still being a robot like his robot self Uh, isn't any different from him so there's really no payoff there either all right, so really quick, would you guys recommend to somebody to watch the show? After all that, yes. I would still recommend the show. I don't think there's anything else that's really out there that's like it. And the story, for all of its faults, is compelling and certainly original. So it, it is worth watching, even if you're going to end up yelling at the TV afterwards. I would generally agree. I think that even though there's a lot of stuff that really rubs me the wrong way, there's enough creativity in here and enough interesting uh, stuff being done with both the characters and the uh, the more military mecha aspect of the whole thing that it would be it'd be hard to think of anything equivalent. It's not uh, it drifts dangerously close to becoming a lot like Gundam here and there, but it never quite goes there. And for that, I appreciate it. I think that it wanted to be its own thing, didn't 100 percent succeed. But there's enough creative spark that uh, it's worth your time to give it a shot. You might find you uh, you can ignore some of the stuff that we uh, pointed out here. Everyone has their own uh, their own tolerance for different stuff. So I had a little bit of time to think about this. I'm actually going to go with mm. no. I I feel like it has artistic merit. 
and I feel like the science is really cool, but I feel like the show is incredibly confused. I feel like it doesn't have any character development at all. I feel like the execution of season two where they threw everything out for these two characters and just did not deliver makes the show such that if you listen to both of our podcasts, if you listen to Hiwano Sarayuki's soundtrack for this show, you're pretty much golden. Like, the music's great, we talked about pretty much all the science, everything in between, in my opinion, was not worth it. There's a better show out there for you if you're interested in a military drama. So I'm I'm going to go with no mm. for this one in the end. But yeah, definitely take it as you will. If you watch it, leave us a comment, and we'd love to hear if you agreed with us, totally disagreed with us, whatever floats your boat. All right, so now we're going to end with points. So as everyone might remember, we <laughs> did try and predict how season two was going to go, um, and we're going to try and give ourselves points at the very end now. So I'm going to claim two points. First of all, I predicted a Salem would survive. So I get a point for that one. She did, in fact, mm -hmm. survive. Kind of cheating, because everybody survives. And then I gave this elaborate prediction based off of the fact that the last episode of season one was called Childhood's End, and I figured that there's going to be this insane descent downward where people are going to be losing their humanity in order to... Like, watching Vares lose their humanity and separate farther and farther from Earth. I felt like Slain went down that path. I, I think I mentioned a picture of Dorian Gray. It's not nearly as dark, but he he definitely shifts very hard from his Terran roots, and by the end, he's as ruthless a Verzian as the Verzians of season mm. one. So I'm going to claim a point for that. So two points for me. Yeah. Do -do -do. Oh, well, mm -hmm. my uh, predictions were pretty scattershot at that point because I really wasn't sure where they were going to take things. I suppose we can all get a point for predicting that this would become, in many ways, the Slain show, which it overall did, though yes, it was split between uh, him and Inaho fairly evenly. It was almost entirely driven by him after a certain point. It was all driven by his actions and how he was trying to get his plan to come to a final conclusion. So, in that respect, you know by sheer process of elimination, and the only one that we were that we had guaranteed was still alive, yes, it became uh, at least partly the Slain show. But uh, beyond that, I can't really say I get much of anything, because his entire thing was basically to just keep continuing the war, rather than using his, uh, you know, using his unique position to either try to find reconciliation, or to pit the Versians against each other, or to side with the Terrans, none of that came to pass. So, uh, yeah, not gonna not gonna claim any of those. Yeah, as for me, uh, I'd said that you know, with everyone dead, so I assume that Nahua Salem and Sao's mom would all die. And I said in my own words, assuming they don't pull some nonsense <laughs> and, oh, and pull some nonsense, they did. I figured that it wouldn't you know become the slain show, and he would end up fighting for Earth. Uh, like sort of in revenge against the version system that had taken a Salem's life and all the traitors that were throughout it. And that, you know, absolutely didn't happen. 
So maybe half a point for being the slain show, but I picked the <laughs> wrong side. So yeah, we all. I think most I of us not. bet on the wrong horse here. Yep, and that's right. just how it goes. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. This was a little long. Thanks for sticking with us, and tune in next time. Indeed.